Welcome this morning. I'm Kieron. It's my pleasure to welcome you here this morning. Some of you are visiting, so it's great to have you with us. We're carrying on in chapter 13 of the book of Acts, and you'll find that this morning on page 922, we'll be thinking about how God is steering history to freedom, how he secured that freedom in Jesus, and how we ought to not thrust that away, but embrace it. So we'll read from verse 13 down to verse 52. Now Paul and his companions set sail for, from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Basidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. 
For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through him this that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So reads God's word. Got a big chunk. But we'll make our way through it this morning. So let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word. We pray as we explore this theme of freedom that there is in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that you would help us to embrace these things. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Can I just grab this zapper here a moment? Thank you. So we're on Paul's uh, first missionary journey this morning, and we're going to be moving <clears throat> here from Paphos, and he heads up here follows this line, he heads up here to this Antioch here. So there's two Antiochs, as you read, and they're going to be up here in Asia Minor. That's where uh, the action is going to take place um, this morning. But think about this theme, firstly, of how God steers history to, fr to freedom. I want to think about that in verses 1 to 25. It's a bit of a theme, the whole historical freedom thing in Ireland at the moment. We're coming to our 100 year anniversary of the 1916 Rising. So tonight is the last in a series called Rebellion. It's been five episodes. Have you watched that? Has anybody watched that? Look at you all. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's on, you can get it on uh, RTE Player, but it's gone through the history and if you don't know much about it, you can find out about it. It was a fight for, for freedom, freedom from British rule and all that that meant at the time. And 
it's been interesting to watch it, especially myself and Esther. Esther comes from Northern Ireland, I'm from here. And looking at it, and it's, been, it's quite a complex history, it's it, controversial, and it does, whatever your opinion of what happened then may be, it helps you understand the present, how we got here, why things are uh, the way that they are now. And there's lots of chaos in any history, unforeseen things, unpredicted things, messy, complicated things. <clears throat> and of course, the 100-year anniversary, it's not as if everything started there. It didn't start in a, in a vacuum. You could go back any number of years to try to understand Irish history. And Esther has a book entitled Irish History from 1690 onwards. She read the first sentence and was already confused. Thinking, well, how did we get to this point? So there's a lot, there's a lot there. But King William was involved in that, and it would be... It would be bizarre to say that King William of Orange somehow steered the history of Ireland to the freedom that came in 1916. It didn't work like that. But of course, all the events were connected. Now, scripture is like history in that it deals with real-time space events. That's what Paul is going to be talking to them about. Events are, of course, connected, but much more than that, because God was all the time in control, steering history deliberately to Jesus, to the freedom that he would bring. And there was nothing random or unforeseen about it. It's not something that we can easily thrust aside, but something to embrace. Jesus was always God's plan A. And that is the story of the Old Testament. The Bible as a whole is of God making things happen to keep his promises in Jesus and to secure freedom for his people. And that is what Paul, in this first address that he gives here, when he reaches um, this far in his missionary journey, that is what he is helping them to understand. He's helping them understand how God steered history to freedom. So as you can see in the map, they had moved on from their time in Greece, and they come to Antioch there in, in Asia Minor, and they head straight to the synagogue, which was their normal pattern. And there's a certain protocol that goes on. So they, they read from the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, and then the ruler sent a message saying, bring us a word of encouragement there in verse 15. So Paul stood up and motions with his hand. He was a, a gifted speaker. He's gathering their attention. And he begins to articulate this history of freedom. He begins to enable them to understand how their history fits together and how God was in control right through that whole time, steering history to freedom. So he starts, verse 17, about how God chose the people in the first place. That'll be a theme a little bit later. He made them great. And then he mentions what had happened in the Exodus there in verse 17, he led them out of the slavery that they were under the, with the Egyptians at that point. And he moves on quickly in sort of bullet points to some of the real signposts in their history. So for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness, verse 18. Then verse 19, he destroys the nations the, that were in the land that they would then occupy. So that's the conquest. He gives them their land as an inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. Then he begins to talk about the leadership that God gave during that time. Verse 20, they're given judges until Samuel. And then during his time, they asked for a king. 
and God gives them the first king that they had, this man called Saul, for about 40 years. So he goes through these quick bullet points and the leadership that they had, but none of them really brought freedom in all of its fullness. So David that he goes on to mention in verse 22 when he had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. He was the closest that they got to rest and freedom. But that was not the end of the freedom story. David was flawed, and their experience under him was flawed. But what is most significant was how God was very purposefully driving his freedom in that whole narrative, steering history to freedom, because it is no accident that of this man's offspring, verse 23, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. So God was brought to Israel, has brought to Israel a savior, not by any accident, but by very deliberate design, steering history to that point. He had steered the nation's history in an exacting way from day one to point to, lead to, and result in the arrival of Jesus Christ in first century Palestine, just as he had promised. And John, who is the last of the Old Testament prophets, is announcing exactly that in verse 24. John had promised a baptism of repentance. We'll see how repentance is tied up with freedom to all of the people of Israel, and he had kept that promise in the bringing of Jesus. John said, I'm not even worthy to untie uh, his sandals. So Paul has given them this sketch of their history to show them that Jesus was the point of that history. Jesus was the one who would realize all the hopes and dreams of that history. God was steering history to freedom in Jesus. He was the promised rescuer. He was the central character that all of this history was driving to. And those are the terms he gives them to consider Jesus in. Those are the terms we are given to consider Jesus in. There was nothing accidental or opportunistic about Jesus. He wasn't an impromptu guru of some kind. He was the long-awaited savior, the freedom giver, and history was steered to win our freedom in him. You well might ask, well, freedom from what? Which brings us on to our second point. In verses 26 then to 39, God secured our freedom in Jesus. So let's explore this freedom theme a little more. It was four minutes past noon on Easter Monday that Padraig Pierce stood outside the GPO and read the proclamation for the very first time. It's now famous. And the proclamation, if you've never read it, it's quite short, so you can read it online. A wonderful thing called the internet. You don't have to, you haven't missed it. You can still get it. And it's all about freedom, political freedom from British rule and the right significantly to self-determination. It was highly controversial at the time. It wasn't welcomed by everybody. It wasn't supported by all. It wasn't really understood across the board or recognized. And the debate about the whole thing rages on. But the story of the scriptures is how God secured our freedom in Jesus 
And you ask yourself, well, what's so important that the entire history of the Bible would be moving towards Jesus and the freedom he would bring? What, what kind of freedom is he bringing? It might be obvious when you look at the 1916 events, the kind of freedom they were seeking. You might not agree with it, but you can, you can see what it was. What is it Jesus was trying to free, did free us from? Well, it might sound counterintuitive to you, but Jesus was actually rescuing us from our desire for self-determination, for self-rule. I wonder what Padraig Pierce would have made of that sentence. Um, because Jesus is presented as the one who liberates us from the utter disaster that our insistence on self-determination has brought, of self-rule. So we have this desire to find freedom, and we want to burst out of the rule of God as we perceive it, because we say it's oppressive, it, it's shackling us, it's weighing us down, it is stopping us from having a right to rule ourselves. And what it does is it has the absolute reverse effect. So we don't experience freedom, we actually experience oppression. We, we are at odds with God now, away from freedom, and at odds with ourselves. And we don't feel liberated. We feel unease. We feel things like shame and guilt and fear. And being at odds with our God and under his judgment. And Jesus comes to free us from all of that. And he did it in a way that wasn't exactly or understood, wasn't greatly understood even, or recognized at the time, even by his followers. Jesus steps right into a political and social setting, intent on bringing true rescue and true freedom, but it wasn't understood at the time. We see that in verse 26, where he talks about bringing this message of salvation. And he says, those who lived in Jerusalem and their rulers, they didn't recognize him, nor understand the utterances, what the prophets were saying, which they had just been reading, but they fulfill them by condemning him. So they didn't recognize him. They didn't understand what was going on in the prophets. But actually, ironically, by their actions, they end up fulfilling the very things they didn't understand. We see that emphasized again in, in verse 29. When, they, when he talks about Pilate, they found nothing. Rather, verse 28, in him worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they'd carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So Paul emphasizes that they didn't understand it, but that God was steering history in such a way that even though they didn't understand it, they fulfilled it, and they fulfilled God's purposes of securing freedom in Jesus. And he emphasizes that there was no grounds, legally or otherwise, to accuse Jesus. He was guiltless despite that fact they handed him over to Pilate, who had him executed. And God is actively in control, decisively and powerfully, bringing freedom through these events, demonstrated palpably by the fact that God raised him from the dead. Verse 30, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses uh, to, the, to the people. Now, this was a lot for those hearers to take in, that God had acted so decisively and powerfully to secure this freedom in Jesus. 
It was a lot for his hearers to take in. And he reinforces his point by reminding them of things they already know and how Jesus fulfills what had been written long before. Verse 35, uh, they know David. David had stayed in the grave. He uses their scriptures here to help them understand Jesus. This is the section that Grant read for us a bit of from Psalm 16. He's talking about David at this point, but David did see corruption. He died and he was buried and he wasn't seen again. But Jesus did not see corruption. He was risen from the dead. He says, verse 36, David, he was laid and saw, fell asleep, laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So he's using the scriptures to help them understand who Jesus is, how he has secured this freedom in him. And again, you ask yourself, well, what's the point of all this history? What is, what's the point of the, to the condemnation and execution of Jesus? What's it, what's it got to do with this freedom? I've been trying to unpack that a little bit, but he drives home the whole point of everything he is saying in verse 38 and 39. He says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, those who were involved in the 1916 Rising, they had a very real sense of their oppression, whether you agreed with their understanding of it or not. They knew what they wanted to be free from. It's harder for us to have a sense of the oppression our desire for self-determination causes, what the Bible calls sin. But Paul links the two. It is for everyone, the, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to everyone, and by him, everyone who believes is freed. See how he connects the two? So I guess if we were to follow on with the 1916 theme, you could say, sin is when we stand and declare our right to the republic of me. My right to rule myself, my way, and on my terms. And where I think God's rule is oppressive, stifling, limiting. Opposed to freedom, but in truth, the very opposite is true. Freedom is found when we acknowledge that we're responsible to God, that we are guilty for trying to rule ourselves, and we find the freedom there is through Jesus dying in our place, and then we experience freedom. There's only chaos and ruin everywhere else. Now, not all of us, of course, are the rebel type. Certainly, many listening to Paul here wanted God's rule and sought to live a life pleasing to him. And they were trying to keep God's law, the law of Moses. He refers to the end of verse 39. Perhaps that's more your kind of character, that you want to follow God. You know, that maybe you think that's done by keeping the Ten Commandments, for example. But in truth, you probably would struggle to, to list the ten of them, never mind keep them perfectly, as would most who, who run to that as their form of, 
of finding rest in God. But it's actually another way of being a self-ruled person. In a less obvious way, trying to live a good life in order to please God is actually an act of rebellion. Because it's another way of saying you're relying on yourself and another way of self-rule. Paul hadn't mentioned Moses at all until now, but he says something they would not have expected, that, Mo, that, that Jesus gives you a true freedom that Moses and the law of Moses never could. So you can be a rebel by ignoring God, and you can be a rebel by trying to keep God's law, because neither actually brings you freedom. You know, freedom could be found by living a certain way. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus die? Why was he raised from the grave? Why not just appear from heaven one day and give us a few more instructions and then go right back again? Because living according to the law of Moses cannot resolve our deepest problem, our sin. Because our desire to self-rule has estranged us from God and we can't fix it. The law can't fix it because God demands perfection. And the law was actually never designed for that purpose anyway. It was designed to point us to Jesus who meets all the perfect demands of the law and paid the penalty for our failing to do so. That's what his death is about. His dying for our sin to secure our forgiveness and our freedom. And when Jesus sets you free, you're free indeed. Every day, we have this relentless search for freedom and acceptance that we can't find anywhere but in God and in his gospel. Here we look for it in our online profiles, in our likes, our shares and retweets or whatever it is. We look for it in the mirror or in our grades or in our job title in relationships, in others approving of who we are and what we do. But rather than bringing freedom, all that does is make us feel more oppressed and more enslaved and more beaten down. Jesus removes the source of all of that estrangement with God and one another and gives us an identity in him that makes us utterly free. You can call God your Father, free from the guilt of sin, free from the burden of our mess, free from accusation, free to live as God has intended for us to live, free to live under God's rule, free to have that secure identity as a child of God. Jesus has secured that freedom and offers that freedom whether our entire lives up to this point have been just an absolute chaotic mess and you've never read a page of the Bible in your life, or if you've tried to live a good life, but know that you just can't join it upright, that something's still not right. Jesus secures that freedom. God secured that freedom for us in Jesus. So if you pass the GPO still today, they've refurbished it was gutted at the time but they didn't fill in all the plasters 
all the plaster bits that had been shot. So you look at the pillars, you can still see all the bullet holes there. I hope you've seen them, have you? Yes? <laughs> you've been in, haven't you? Goodness, I hope you have been in there. David, you can, you can get there yet. But, you know, I look at that and you see the scars and the marks of it. And I find myself asking, you know, am I living in true freedom under the good news of Jesus Christ? Or am I still trying to live in the republic of me and the oppression that that brings? So finally, in verses 40 to 52, in light of what we've been saying, this is where Paul pushes his whole argument don't thrust freedom aside, but embrace it. In verses 40 to 52. Don't thrust freedom aside, but embrace it. See, he gives them a warning. Verse 40, beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And then he also talks about how the hearers in verse 46 in the middle there, thrust it aside and judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. So he, he's warning against that kind of response. Now, I've been talking a lot this morning about the 1916 thing, and some of you may not really be much interested in history, might not be your, your thing. And you, you may, if, if it isn't your thing, you can just thrust that aside. You don't need to know the history to go into the GPO and buy a stamp. You don't have to know the history of Ireland to, to live and, and work here and get on with things. You might be less informed, fair enough. You might not know exactly how things evolved led up to this point and why this thing is such a thing this year. That may be the case. Your parents or the older generation might be dismayed with your lack of interest or knowledge. But you're not throwing away your whole life. But the warning that Paul gives is, by thrusting this history aside, and by thrusting what Jesus has secured aside, you're in danger of throwing away your whole life, now and eternally. And so he says, don't thrust freedom aside. Embrace it. See, he gives them this warning in verse 40, and he cites an example from another book of Scripture in verse 41, which is basically an example when their forefathers didn't recognize what God was doing and they were caught off guard by his judgment. And he's warning them, look, don't make the same mistake. And yet he's met with a very mixed response in the following section. There are those who really are hungry to hear more and they embrace it. In verse 40, the people begged that these things might be told them that the next Sabbath those who wanted to go forward into this freedom. And then, of course, there are those who totally reject it and revile Peter and everything, or Paul, and what he is saying. And thrust it aside. So some turn out and they've had a taste for, for this freedom. They recognize the significance of it and they want to embrace it. But by the same token, there are those who totally reject it contradicted they're opposed to it they want to get rid of all that is being said and they flatly contradict what Paul says verse 45 the Jews see the crowds they're filled with jealousy and they contradict what was spoken and they revile Paul 
and they want to get rid of this whole thing. In verse 50, they incite others, the devout women of high standing and the leaders, men of the city, to stir up this persecution and flush Paul and Barnabas out. Indeed, they drive them out of the district. You see how real the scriptures are. They don't paint some rose-tinted image of how all of this was responded to. And look at how Paul puts it to them. He says in verse 46 and how he responds to, to those who have who thrust it aside. He says, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. They rule themselves out of eternal life. So Paul makes them responsible for that themselves. We're not robots. We're responsible for how we relate to the good news of Jesus. And Paul turns his attention to the Gentiles, those who are new to this history and message, the non-Jews. And rather than thrust it aside, they embrace it. They embrace it with joy. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed and the word of the Lord was spreading through the whole region. They didn't have to look from the outside in. They were now able to be part of this freedom story. Jesus had secured their place. It didn't matter that they hadn't been born into it or practiced Judaism from day one. It didn't matter at all. They embraced this message of freedom with joy. They wanted to hear more. They recognized there is nothing of greater significance I was talking to one of the dads at Finn's Gaelic football yesterday morning. Let me just get into a very quick conversation about my work. And he said, I read a lot of books about God, God's spirituality. And I said, yeah, these are fundamental questions. And he said to me, there is nothing of greater significance. And he's right. If this is true, what we're talking about this morning, it is infinitely interesting. It is gripping, it is life-changing, and it is something that we ought to embrace continually. It's not just a one-off event, because we live with the effects of our sin every day. We still get entangled in the mess of that. We still look for freedom and acceptance in thousands of other places, and we get lost. So embracing the freedom Jesus brings is a daily and lifelong experience and joy. Not that we're gaining that freedom, rather we're embracing what we already have in the good news of Jesus. We've seen how the Jews willfully rejected it. And now you have the other emphasis in verse 48 when Paul says, as many as were appointed, Luke rather, who's writing, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. You see, God leaves nothing to chance. He chose the nation in the first place. He steered history to freedom. He has secured that freedom in Jesus. And as many as were appointed to that freedom believe, he completes the circle. He completes that freedom in our hearts. And that perhaps is the one verse that we're more likely to stumble over than any of the rest. But look at it in context. Look at the monumental effort Paul goes to 
to make Jesus known. He's on his missionary journey here, the first of three. He appeals to the people. He warns them. And people willfully reject and look away from him. And those who do receive it, they receive it with freedom and joy. It's a big issue, but let me say to you that there is nothing, no such thing in the scriptures as someone who wanted that freedom and God would not give it. The context here in this scripture is meant as one of celebration and joy. God's word spreads even in a hotbed of opposition. He is securing that freedom in people's hearts. And the disciples, old and new, are filled with joy. They are seeing again that God makes a straight path for his word. God has steered history to freedom. He has secured that freedom in Jesus. What will we do with it? Will we thrust it aside or will we embrace it? The proclamation states that their aim was to resolve to pursue the happiness and prosperity of the whole nation and all of its parts. But ultimately, only the freedom Jesus brings can deliver that. Our Father, we ask you to thrill us by your spirit with the truth of your word and enable us to celebrate the freedom we have in Jesus. It's in his name we pray.